This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Good afternoon, Bill. Hey, Ward. How are you? I'm doing great. We have a great guest today, so why don't we get right to him? We do. Our guest is joining us from Omaha, Nebraska. It's Admiral Charles Richard. He is the U.S. Strategic Command Commander and he wrote an article that we published in the February issue of Proceedings. It's titled Forging 21st Century Strategic Deterrence. And it's gotten quite a bit of attention, uh, including, I'll note, uh, over the weekend, CNN's Barbara Starr wrote an article about an upcoming series of big DOD war games. And it uh, had a long couple of quotes from uh, Admiral Richard's article. So, Admiral Richard, thanks for joining us on the show today. Uh, well, it's a great pleasure to be here. And thanks for having me. Sir, just for our listeners, um, just give us a little bit about you know your background and also what U.S. Strategic Command does. So I'm a straight-stick career submariner, uh, having had the privilege to command uh, at, at 04, 05, 06 uh, uh, levels, uh, a variety of mission sets. Um, most of my flag duties, though, have been uh, dedicated to the strategic mission. I've had three tours here at uh, U.S. Strategic Command. Uh, in addition to having commanded the uh, submarine force. And so uh, fortunate to have a, a lot of experience um, both in the submarine force and in particular with the strategic mission set. Now, U.S. Strategic Command is one of, of course, 11 combatant commanders. Our fundamental UCP responsibility, uh, Unified Command Plan, is to provide for strategic deterrence right, of our nation and our allies. Now, we have a number of other responsibilities to include global strike, uh, missile defense uh, advocacy, joint electromagnetic uh, spectrum operations, and a couple of other uh, mission sets. But fundamentally, what we provide to the joint force in the Department of Defense is to maintain strategic deterrence and restore it if necessary. So, sir, in your article, which uh, for our listeners, if you've got the paper copy of proceedings, you can find it on starting on page 12 of the February issue. You wrote, the United States has sustained global counterterrorism efforts for two decades and has grown accustomed to ignoring the nuclear dimension. Our recent experiences against non-nuclear armed adversaries have allowed us to believe nuclear use is impossible and not worthy of attention. At the U.S. Strategic Command, we assess the probability of nuclear use is low, but not impossible, particularly in a crisis and as our nuclear-armed adversaries continue to build capability and exert themselves globally, end of quote. Can you talk a bit about how Russia and China are building and modernizing their nuclear forces and how their behaviors concern you? Yeah, certainly, Bill. Hey, that was the part of the central thesis of the article was the idea that we have grown accustomed to confronting uh, nations that did not have a nuclear capability. 
Uh, we are back in the business of great power competition. And I'm fond of, you know, say that three or four times in your war college paper and you'll probably get a B. But it is necessary to start to unpack that. What does that mean? And part of what that means is, is that we now face people potentially in crisis or conflict who have a nuclear capability or said maybe in a more academic way, they have an independent ability to select any level of violence they wish to take the competition or the conflict to. That is a change. And it's been a long time since we faced that. Uh, And we'll come back to that, I think, more in the conversation. But you specifically asked about the threat, and that was a big chunk of the article um, was to lay out what we see the threat in this mission space. Remember, when I talk about a Russia or a China in this mission set, this is additive on everything else that they're capable of doing. The department has to address all of it. It's probably best to start with China in this conversation. Russia is by far the pacing threat, uh, and it really sets right now capacity and capability requirements to execute our strategy. But China is rapidly accelerating. In fact, what what I think would be important uh, for your listeners to know is we wrote that article nearly a year ago. Um, Things have changed dramatically with regards to China just since we wrote the article, and I know it got published earlier this year. China has hit some kind of an inflection point or an acceleration with her nuclear forces. Um, it is, uh, we're all fond of this. Uh, it was, again, about a year ago that DIA came out and said China is expected to it, uh, perhaps as much as double her strategic stockpile by the end of the decade. One, they are way ahead of the pace necessary to do that based on their actions over the last year. Two is simply measuring a nation's stockpile is a very crude measure of what uh, military capabilities they derive from their uh, strategic forces. Um, You have to add in what's their delivery systems, what's the accuracy, what's the command and control, what's the readiness, training, doctrine, all the stuff I think many folks here would be very familiar with, particularly those with operational backgrounds. But in the last year alone, China has rapidly accelerated the fielding of a road mobile um, ballistic missile force, both at uh, intercontinental and shorter ranges. She's building a a solid fuel uh, intercontinental ballistic missile silos about as fast as she can go. She has her sixth gen submarine available now and is capable of commencing continuous at sea deterrent patrols. Um, She now has a what you might describe. Everybody's just listening to me. You can't see me putting the air quotes up of true nuclear command and control. But she's building a, a, a skip echelon system. Uh, that is uh, different from what she has done in the past, much closer to what both Russia and the United States has. She's getting a launch under warning, launch under attack capability, readiness like we've never seen before, training like we've never seen before. So she has clearly hit some kind of inflection point and is rapidly accelerating the threat. This adds up to China can no longer be considered some kind of lesser included case of Russia when it comes to how we're going to accomplish strategic deterrence on behalf of the U.S. and our allies. Russia, about 10, 15 years ago, made the decision to start to recapitalize her strategic forces. And so she's somewhere between 70 and 80 percent complete is on track to be ready to do that by the mid-20s. It's easier to describe on Russia what they're not modernizing as opposed to what they are because it's basically everything, right? They have a new ballistic missile submarine, actually a second generation of that. They have a second generation new ballistic uh, missile off the submarine. 
Uh, they have new uh, intercontinental ballistic missile silo base. They have a new road mobile missile. They've upgunned their aircraft. They have new weapons off the aircraft, new command and control, new warning, uh, new doctrine, or, or at least they've told us uh, that they will contemplate first use of nuclear weapons under certain conditions where the existence of the Russian state is threatened. Um, and so across the board, and that's on top of their novel systems, the ones that are not treaty constrained, the two highlights being the nuclear-powered, nuclear-tipped cruise missile and a nuclear-powered, autonomous, nuclear-tipped um, underwater vehicle. Um, and they continue to push that along with their aggressive behaviors uh, and their pursuit of actions that challenge the international order. So Russia is, is formidable. I think it's important also to note, uh, it was a good thing we extended the New START Treaty that uh, had benefits for both us and the Russians, right? Sets a, a limit on treaty accountable weapons. More importantly, has transparency and confidence building measures. But what it leaves unaddressed is somewhere, you know, pick your number, 2,000 non-treaty accountable weapons that they have, mostly to offset their conventional inferiority. My responsibility is to deter all of that, not just the pieces that are treaty constrained. So in the article, you talk about how you bristle when you hear the Pentagon accused of being stuck in the Cold War. But to pony on what Bill was talking about with respect to your sense that the probability of nuclear use is low but not impossible, you list some, and you just were talking about it just now, some some specific activities by the Chinese and the Russians you know, during Black Sea Ops, we've had Russian fighters fly very low ab around our small boys. We've had some cat and mouse in the South China Sea. Do you have any concern that those activities, which feel very Cold War-esque, you know, it reminds me of the cat and mouse we used to do in the Med uh, with Krivax and Sovereign Remedies and, you know, back in the day. And so are you concerned that that could escalate to uh, your arena if something, one of those provocative actions results in, in something catastrophic. It's a ward, absolutely. And, uh, hey, that background gets to uh, kind of pushing back on the idea that we haven't thought any differently about strategic deterrence today than we did back in the Cold War. Um, and, in fact, that whole article was uh, the beginnings of us radically rethinking how you conduct strategic deterrence in the 21st century. And a key difference is that for the first time in our nation's history, we are very close to having to deter two peer nuclear-capable adversaries at the same time, right? As difficult as the Cold War was, and it was very challenging, we forget how difficult it was, that was a two-party problem. We are rapidly getting into a three-party world where things you do, do to deter one affect the other. And so we are working really hard to understand how that changes. And again, um, Ward Bill, I think a thing that gets um, not recognized a lot, we like saying that strategic deterrence, uh, and remember, strategic and nuclear are not synonymous. All nuclear is strategic, not all strategic is nuclear, right? So I have to deter a strategic attack on the U.S., not just a nuclear attack. Nuclear is just the more visible, easier, easier to conceptualize piece. But most important mission translates operationally to the idea every single O-plan in the Department of Defense and every other capability we have carries an implicit assumption that strategic deterrence, and in particular nuclear deterrence, is holding. And if that fails, 
nothing else in the department works the way it was designed, right? We like taking this thing in pieces and putting nuclear off on its side. That's somehow different than conventional, which is somehow different from space, which is somehow different from cyber. And what we'd show you with our theories are that it's all linked, right? This The deterrent spectrum is linked. You have to deter across the spectrum. For, forgive me, I'm an, I'm an engineer, right? I'm one of the last two guys on active duty that interviewed with Rick over, right? So everything collapses to an equation that I have to hold against a boundary condition. And that's the way we look at this, right? In terms of the equation for any action the opponent considers, can I either deny their aim or impose a cost greater than what they seek with credibility, such that the benefit of restraint outweighs the benefit of action? There's your equation. Now make it hold all the way from the gray zone to strategic nuclear to include space and cyber worldwide. That's how you go about deterring people. And so getting back to your question is we forced ourselves to start trying to analyze what is the risk of a deterrence failure. And what we found is, look, day to day, the probability of a deterrence failure, the so-called bolt out of the blue, is very small. We'd be the first people to tell you that um, because we analyze it every day. I want to come back to that in a second. Where you wind up potentially having deterrence fail is out of failed conventional aggression. One side miscalculates. You actually try to present um, U.S. and our allies a fait accompli, but we have formidable conventional forces. We redress that in a way that it winds up turning the contest existential, whether we meant for it to or not. And then particularly for an authoritarian government, nuclear could become their least bad choice when the other is to lose the existence of the state. Um, it is my responsibility to set the operating condition that that doesn't happen for the rest of the joint force. It's just a very challenging deterrence problem. You will not simply generate, send a demarche and fly a bomber around your way out of that problem. Let me now come back to bolt out of the blue, though, for a second, which is I think sometimes we forget we made bolt out of the blue improbable because of the way the forces are postured, the forces are capable, uh, a bolt out of the blue attack against the U.S. today probably isn't going to work. That's why it's unthinkable. If we were not careful, we could actually take steps to make bolt out of the blue uh, much more likely if we're not thoughtful about the forces that we have to accomplish this mission. Sir, if I can build on that for a second, uh, you know, yours isn't the first article about strategic deterrence or strategic nuclear weapons and non, even non-strategic nuclear weapons that we've had in proceedings over the last couple of years. Um, uh, one of our bright, shining young stars, a, a Navy lieutenant submariner uh, named Andrea Howard wrote a piece for us about how Russia had updated its its strategy, its nuclear weapons strategy a couple of years ago. And, and it brought, you know, she talked about um, how the Russians had been moving back to or, or reinvesting in tactical nuclear weapons, something that the U.S. got out of. You know, we took nuclear-tipped tomahawks and, and nuclear weapons off most of our ships back in the, you know, at the end of the Cold War, and that the, the Russians had this now, you know, escalate to de-escalate kind of uh, philosophy that if you, as you were just saying, if something starts to get out of hand and it looks like they might lose a conventional, um, you know, standoff, um, that they could escalate with a tactical nuclear weapon to get the other side, being us, the United States, to back down. So how does that, you know, can you talk a little bit about that, that 
escalate to de-escalate. You know, where do we, you know, as you said, you, you've got to deter across the entire spectrum of conflict. Was was it, I don't know, a mistake is probably too strong a word, but getting out of the tactical nuclear weapons, um, you know, mission set, was that something, is that something the United States needs to get back into? Is that something that you're contemplating? Well, one, um, I, I think the point is absolutely valid. Uh, we can debate a little bit over is it escalate to de-escalate? Is it escalate to win? Is it uh, the exact translation escalate to avoid uh, uh, fall of the, the, the Russian government? Bottom line, though, is they consider the possibility of using uh, tactical or small nuclear weapons as a way to offset conventional inferiority and to strike at our will and to strike at the cohesion of our alliances. And we spend a lot of time trying to think through how do we deter that? Um, I wouldn't want to go back and replay the tape. If you look at this mission set, it's threat-based, right? And if you look at the threat that existed at the time, along with the hopes that um, our political processes would evolve in a way that uh, minimized uh, differences that required uh, militaries to resolve, probably was a good idea. But those conditions have changed, both the political conditions and the threat that we faced. And one of the things that uh, is incumbent upon us is to make sure for deterrence to work, the other side has to be convinced that whatever they think they might want to do, which in this case could be limited nuclear use to redress conventional losses, won't work because we have an answer that will impose a greater cost or we can deny their aim. And so that's why... Uh, reintroduction of the uh, low yield ballistic missile, right, was designed precisely to close that uh, gap. Important to remember, we've always had low yield weapons in the U.S. inventory back from day one. Uh, it's just that if you want to deter something, you actually have to be able to get to the target. Uh, and as the threat has changed, we had to change the way that we're delivering it so that we cover all possible circumstances. Um, similarly, there have been calls for a reintroduction of a sea launch cruise missile. The, uh, and that is the longer term answer to provide sufficient. We're not trying to match anybody one for one. I, I don't have to have as many as they have. I just have to have enough. Um, but uh, that will help um, close that gap uh, in, in that thinking. That will also become uh, important as China continues to grow. And we ought to keep in mind that one thing that the U.S. has that Russia and China do not is if we have extended deterrence and assurance commitments, right? There are any number of nations, both by multilateral and or uh, bilateral treaty agreements, who chose to forego their own nuclear weapons because they had confidence that the United States would take care of that. I'd assert that that, uh, more than anything else, has been beneficial to nonproliferation in the world, uh, but it is a responsibility that we have to maintain allied confidence in that. Um, the sea launch cruise missile in particular, because of its lack of host nation basing requirements, its flexibility in terms of employment, goes a long way to assuring our allies that the U.S. is ready to honor those commitments. Admiral, you, your article does a great job for the layman of framing it like you were just talking about traditionally or your, your average person who deigns to care about our business will think about conventional versus nuclear, and in terms of deterrence, that's framed incorrectly. You also state in the article, great power competition does not span four quarters or nine innings, and our competitors are no less committed than we are. Instead, we should view competition as the maintenance of relative advantage over competitors. It is an infinite game. 
one in which the goal is to remain a dominant player. So infinite games against finite defense budgets and and palm cycles and national will. In fact, the Naval Institute was created in an era where Admiral Warden was frustrated that the national will had waned in the wake of the Civil War and the, the Hill had stopped paying attention to recapitalizing the Navy in the face of an existential threat, in, in this case, the Spanish Navy. So how does this work in terms of an infinite game? What kind of strategy does that entail? Well, Ward, actually, there's two kind of aspects to that that I'd like to point out, which is uh, we'd be the first to tell you that the a way you avoid having nuclear strategic deterrence fail is to not get into a conventional fight to start with. And in fact, that would drive you all the way down into the gray zone so that you're competing in a fashion that the other side doesn't choose to use armed force to address it. This is this linkage idea. Um, and then a, a couple other key points in that linkage idea is the idea that it's there's non-linearities in it, right? There's dis continuities in this spectrum of violence under which um, the opponent's decision of calculus may appear to rapidly change on you. Um, and in fact, we'll throw cones if I were to show you the chart to show it's very difficult to predict what happens when you cross a discontinuity, right? So you're better off not crossing one. And that's a long way of saying that we need a total force that is able to deter across that entire spectrum. But I think you wanted to focus uh, more on the imminent decisions that the nation is going to face in terms of recapitalizing the strategic component of this. And what I point out here that makes it different than sort of what I would call the year to year work that we do on our conventional and other forces is we only do this um, every other generation. We only do this every 40 years. And in fact, we're well past the point of needing to do it. I think of the Ohio class submarine is a shining example of a system that was designed to be maintained for 30 years, yet we're going to take it out to 42, right? We've never taken an individual submarine past 37 years of service, yet now we're going to take a whole class of them to 42. Well, first, that's in my mind a proud to be an American uh, moment, right? What a credit to the people that designed it built it, maintained it, and operated it, that we even had the choice to go do that, right? Um, some of them are probably listening right now. The Navy is doing Herculean efforts to actually get the boat to make it out to 42 years. And I'm deeply appreciative of what Navy's doing on that. But we are at the point where we have to have new uh, delivery systems. We have to have new command and control. We need new weapons infrastructure because we have shot all the operational margin. That's what allowed us to get this far to begin with. And so once every other 40 years, it's a three and a half percent of the Department of Defense's budget. And if we don't get this right, nothing else is going to work the way it was designed uh, to begin with. And I think the final point, uh, I suspect there's a few people here who have eights in their uh, uh, job uh, assignments um, somewhere. Look, to my opinion, bureaucracies are not terribly bad about making an individual decision. We tend to be messy. We argue about it a lot. But we actually don't do a, a bad job of that. What we are challenged with is cumulative effects of risks that we uh, have in our decisions. And then most importantly, almost every decision we make programmatically, if you're wrong, you can come back in two or three years and buy it back. 
you'll pay more money for it. You probably wished you hadn't done it, but you can buy it back. We have pushed the recapitalization of the triad back so far that we're at some points of no return, that if we get it wrong, we're going to lose a key piece of infrastructure or we're going to lose a particular talent base and we're not buying it back for unlimited money for, say, five or 10 years because um, we'll have lost the people that know how to do it uh, or uh, we'll have lost a key piece of infrastructure that nobody remembers how to build. I just want to you would think somehow we'd never made a heat shield for a reentry vehicle uh, in this country. Right. Because um, it was so long ago. Hardly anybody remembers how we did it. Um, we do it differently now and it's not up to the right standards. Um, and if we were to do it again, we wouldn't do it the way we did it 30 years ago, right? So we're at some critical tipping points that I think the, the nation has the resources to um, properly acquire this underpinning for the rest of the department. You know, some of what you've mentioned here, I think, gets to the, the nature of this problem set being not just, you know, a difference between a a theater commander like Indo-PACOM and you at the strategic command, but, you know, the need to sort of cross boundaries between those commands and even cross national boundaries, right? So, um, you know, Great Britain and France, for example, nuclear armed allies of the United States. How often do you talk to your French and British counterparts about what China and Russia are doing? Do they share your concerns? And then maybe after that, talk a little bit about how you uh, interface with Indo-PACOM or with uh, the European Command Commander or even, um, you know, U.S. Cyber Command. Hey, so, Bill, a couple of things. I'd almost rather answer that in the reverse order, right? And so the answer is we talk to Indo-PACOM, UCOM, Space Command. We talk to them all the time. But we're still fundamentally a regionally organized military, right? We tend to think that all plans support the theater, that's not the way it works in great power competition. My plans don't support the theater, at least not directly. My plans support presidential direction uh, as interpreted by the secretary of defense and the chairman, right? My job is to maintain strategic deterrence. You can think of that as the ultimate permissive operating condition, right, that I am providing to the rest of the joint force to allow us to go um, uh, uh, accomplish national objectives, project power and so forth. And yeah, there are some things we do that do support the theater. But fundamentally, I'm answering for strategic deterrence. The other mission is very similar to that. And again, it's how it changes in great power competition is homeland defense, right? We can no longer assume that the homeland is a sanctuary. And General Van Herkut, uh, NORAD Northern Commands, his, his responsibility is to defend uh, North America, right? Which is also an essential operating condition to allow us to project force, right? So in some respects, we're like a regionally focused military who is trying to handle a global problem by bolting on two mission sets, strategic deterrence and homeland defense, and two domains, space and cyber, when we need to rethink the supported supporting relationships required. You have to do all of that together, right? You have to defend your homeland. You have to deter strategically. You have to accomplish um, national objectives, and you have to do them in parallel. That's not going to be accomplished by uh, one supported commander and everybody else supporting. That's internal to the department. Now you talked about the allies. Talk to them all the time um, at uh, senior military levels. I have a number of foreign liaison officers here in the headquarters um, specifically to make sure that we have good lines of communication. We understand how 
they're viewing the issue. They're actually a key piece of how we determine risk of deterrence failure is we include our allies to make sure that their perspectives, in some cases unique, is brought in, as well as how we're coordinating the operation of our forces um, in order to um, uh, meet um, treaty obligations. NATO comes to mind in terms of a lot of what we talk about as well as making sure a, a running assessment on how well we're assuring them. So, Admiral, you were just talking about the Ohio class and how you're pushing it from what had planned to be a 30-year operating uh, lifespan into the 42-year range. Um, I think the specific uh, ship that represents that is the, or the boat rather, is USS Henry M. Jackson. Um, and, and the great work that's happening there, and we've seen the same in other parts of the, the fleet, um, but let's talk about the other legs of the nuclear triad. As we talk about old stuff, I'm thinking the bureau numbers of your B-52s are, you know, older than we are. And you and I, Admiral, the same year group, we're pretty old. Um, and, and so how are you feeling with respect to the other legs of the nuclear triad you're responsible for? And, and how does this play out in terms of the program of record? Are you satisfied that what we are buying near term and in the out years is what you need? Hey, so Ward, to your point, the uh, B-52 is, is an iconic example of both what the nation has done and what the nation needs to do. I just took the chairman up to Minot where he got to look inside one of our 60-year-old B-52s, right? Uh, so all of ours were built that we're using today in 61 and 62. They're 60-year-old now. They will be 90 by the time they finally come off service. The last pilot to fly the B-52 hasn't been born yet. To give you a more, as I told the chairman, nothing in the strategic inventory, were it to be a person, would be allowed to be on active duty in any capacity. It's all past that point, right? Um, so again, I could point back to the Air Force in terms of the Herculean efforts that they are doing over there. Uh, same thing on the Minuteman uh, weapon system. And, and again, you, you got to be an operator and get into the details, right? Test equipment, right, for the Minuteman 3, right? That is a real, uh, there's, there's just absolute heroics going on trying to keep the test gear up so they continue to do the maintenance on that. Um, and so um, the, the bottom line is, though, that one, if you want, me to execute the strategy that the nation has, I need the capabilities um, and, and the triad with some modest supplementation. It's important to remember, we've had a pretty amazingly consistent nuclear deterrent strategy, strategic strategy, dating all the way back to the Kennedy administration, flexible and tailored. It sits between about a midpoint of a minimum deterrent strategy, which some nations have, and an attempt to have a primacy strategy. So to do that, I need the capabilities, policies, and postures we have all worked out. The whole thing goes together in a very well-thought-out family of what we do. I've been strongly advocating inside the department that before we answer any particular question, do you need a GBSD, what about a no-first-use policy, go back and look at your strategy and make sure you're happy with that. And then make the decisions on what you need to execute that strategy. If you reverse that process, you run the risk of backing yourself into a different strategy without realizing you were doing it. And I think what's telling here, while fortunately deterrence has, has held, right? We don't have um, all but one instance of actual nuclear use, right? So a lot of this seems theoretical. 
But we do have 70 years of experience in deterrence. And so I said the strategy goes back to the Kennedy administration. It's kind of illustrative in my mind to look at the one time we tried something else. This is in the Eisenhower administration. It was called the New Look Strategy or a Maximum Response. And if you recall, a lot of the motivations then are the same as it was today. We didn't want to spend the money um, to have this large force, right? And in particular, we didn't want a large conventional force, right? And so our answer uh, for all of our defense needs was going to be the B-36 and the bomb, right? We had both of those. And whatever your problem was, we would address it with a B-36 and the bomb. And so we canceled the USS United States. It was going to be the first big deck supercarrier. It was triggered the revolt of the admirals that y'all I'm sure are familiar with. Same thing on the land component side, just not so spectacular. What did we learn? We quickly figured out it actually wasn't very flexible and in many cases was disproportionate to the point that it was ineffective. So Tito, back in the then Yugoslavia, he's doing something you don't like. So you fly your B-36 over there and we kind of realized pretty quickly this isn't going to work. Right. So we rapidly came back with conventional forces to give us more options and a much more flexible and tailored strategic strategy. I'd like to make sure we don't repeat that mistake in the future. So the, uh, the recent talks between Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense uh, uh, in Alaska with their Chinese counterparts uh, reminded me of a, of a couple of things. One was I was working at the Pentagon and uh, I guess it was in early 2000 when um, the EP3 uh, incident happened and the EP3 diverted to Hainan Island. And I mean, that was a big dust up and you know, what, what are the Chinese going to do? How do we communicate with them? One of the things that was missing at that time was a hot a hotline or a Mo link, you know, the Moscow link, which we have with the Russians, right? There wasn't, there was nothing like that with the Chinese that either side could pick up a phone and say, hey, what's going on? Where do you stand? You know, and, and just have a direct conversation. So I wanted to ask you today, has, has it, it, is there now a direct communication? Is there a hotline between you or, or the Pentagon and your, your counterparts in Beijing? So, Bill, the answer is China has a very opaque um, strategy that they execute across the board, right? They believe they derive deterrence value from that. So, no, there is no hotline. Uh, and no, I have no direct con uh, contact with them. Now, you know, I think it's important, again, the historical analogy here is as tough as the Cold War was, right, at least throughout it, we and the Russians were talking, right? There were very difficult conversations to be had throughout that, but we were talking. I think that's an important step that we need to achieve with China. In fact, I call on China to do that, right? To be a great power comes with great responsibility uh, and having conversations such that we all minimize any misunderstanding and have uh, more mutual confidence in terms of what we're doing. We learned that that was important in the Cold War. I would rather they not learn lessons uh, unnecessarily when all we'd have to do is have a conversation that could avoid it. That's why I'd like to see, I'm for any arms control that is uh, reduces the threat and, and is verifiable and all parties um, uh, apply by it because it just makes my job easier. And with China, I'd almost tell you to forget about the numbers to begin with. Let's just start the conversation on transparency and mutual confidence measures. It, you'll see us throw around terms about what the size of their stockpile is. 
remember, they haven't told us that, right? They haven't told us anything. Those are our estimates, maybe in some cases good, maybe not so much. But this level of transparency, I think, is in both nations' interests, particularly inside this mission set. The final thought is we are nowhere near done rethinking deterrence theory. And in fact, one thing we've noticed is the number of people left in the Department of Defense that have operational experience in how to do deterrence is very small um, and not like it was back in the Cold War. Most of them are out here in Omaha with STRATCOM, but even here, we don't have the number that we need, right? And so efforts to reinvigorate both the academic and then the professional military side of this so that we think through how we do deterrence, right? It is a different mission set than what most of us are brought up on. I myself had had no training really to speak of until uh, uh, a major command level. And so that is something we're going to be having a broader conversation on is how do we think through our training, our uh, professional education, uh, the way the nation is organized, right? We used to have entire think tanks that didn't do anything but that's what RAND was invented for, right? And so given that we have a much harder problem to approach, um, that is something we need to be thinking about. And I would applaud the Naval Institute, right, for kind of leading the way in some respects in terms of bringing these topics back out, encouraging the debate and, and in, encouraging us to think about these things uh, because we haven't had to in 30 years, but we're going to need to. So, Admiral, you mentioned that you were one of the last nuclear power candidates to interview with Admiral Rickover. What do you remember from that get-together? Did he lock you in a closet or anything, or have you call your fiancé and say the wedding's off or any of those kinds of things? So, no, I, I did, I, although I will tell you that I, I thought my entire naval career was going to last about five minutes, right, because when I walked out of it, um, I did not think he was going to select me. I won't go through the whole story, but uh, obviously uh, it winds up with him um, – I was very formal, erect in the chair, and next thing he's telling to me to relax, and now he wants me to laugh, and next I'm ho ho hoing like Santa Claus, and he's yelling out to the secretaries if they can hear me. And it was that that at that point I had concluded that uh, I'd had about the shortest timed naval career of anyone in history that lasted about two minutes and thirty seconds. So mine's good; it's not on par with many of them. And I do think the uh, the last officer will be Admiral Caldwell at Naval Reactors. In a coming issue of Proceedings, I don't, I'm not sure if it's going to be in May or in June. We have a, uh, a "Lest We Forget" column about Admiral Rickover when he was a lieutenant, written by um, Dennis Clift, who's one of our uh, Sage staff members who knows everything that's been in proceedings and all our oral histories, but it, it comes from an oral history by a young junior officer who worked for Rickover when Rickover was chief engineer on a battleship back, I think this is even pre-World War II days. And so that, that lieutenant thought, thought Rickover was, uh, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. So interesting, interesting stories always about Admiral Rickover. Well, I'm glad y'all are doing that. And I, of course, would defer to Admiral Caldwell and naval reactors, but I think it's a a celebration in some respects of the iconic example of what it means to have excellence and adherence to a technical standard, right? And that is a lesson that um, I, I don't think we in the Navy ever want to forget, right? It is remarkable how well uh, naval reactors in the Navy more generally is uh, discharged the responsibility of naval nuclear propulsion, 
Um, but that's not easy. Being elite is not easy, and it requires you to dedicate and work awfully, awfully hard uh, and be effective at it. And that is something to celebrate that I think to this day we still know how to do that. The, the strategic mission is unique in that victory looks like nothing happened. And, and so that's a very non-military thing, right? And so not only did, did we not, has, has there never been a nuclear attack on the United States, we have taken the fear out of the attack, out of the American psyche. I mean, I'm old enough as a kid to have done a duck and cover drill, right? That's where the alarm goes off. We're under attack. You, uh, I was in uh, elementary school. You know, even as a young kid, I'm trying to figure out, I'm not sure what this desk is doing for me, right? I figure that if it's that bad, this is not too much, right? But we really thought about things like that. Um, my kids, and I don't know of anyone who has ever even thought about that today, even though the threat's still there, right? Um, what, what a success. But that was not free. That was um, 4,000 strategic deterrent patrols. That was innumerable sorties in uh, um, bomber and command and control aircraft. That's uncountable hours in launch control silos in command centers, right? That's um, thousands and thousands of men and women who gave their entire career to a mission set. And we'll never know their names, right? We don't name buildings or ships after these people, right? You just quite, it's the most important, least glamorous mission in the Department of Defense. And one thing US and I could do is, uh, uh, by posting the articles, I need a few people to come and help me, right? I need people that are willing to go to that ballistic missile submarine assignment or that command and control assignment and become experts in this mission set to to bring up that next generation. And U.S. and I can help me with that. For our listeners who uh, might be interested in writing on this topic, you push it on an open door. Every Anybody can write for proceedings, and uh, you can send an article, try to keep it 2,500 words or less, and send it to article submissions at usni.org as a word attachment to an email. So we, uh, we're definitely interested in, in all comers. So that's a really good point. For our listeners, Admiral Charles Richard is the commander, U.S. Strategic Command. His article is in the February issue of Proceedings. It is called Forging 21st Century Strategic Deterrence. Sir, thanks again for writing for Proceedings and for your time today. Hey, Bill, thank you very much. Uh, Ward, I, I noticed, by the way, your background. Uh, I know the listeners can't see that. Those beautiful um, blue angels you got back there. But I'm going to send you a picture of a D5 uh, launch, right, which is also a pretty spectacular thing that I think you might want behind you, too, occasionally. All right. Thank you, Admiral. Appreciate the time. That does it for another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.